This is the Strength Anger Podcast, part of the Berserker Strength Radio Network, featuring APF Illinois State Chairman Eric Stone, as well as AAPF AWPC Powerlifter Robert Bain. We are coming at you from 2XL Powerlifting in Lombard, Illinois, and you can find this podcast online on anchor.fm. All right, this is Eric Stone here with Robert Bain on the second episode of the Strength and Anger podcast. Number two. Bain, any feedback from last week? Uh, yeah, you know, I had some folks who, who listened to it. And, uh, you know, some folks have ho- heard my uh, my origin story, so uh, nothing really new. But I think people are excited about the uh, the podcast and just kind of where we can take it. I think uh, it is the, the audience that I, that I would speak to, they are excited about some of the topics we're going to be talking about, so... Yeah, I got told to sound a little less like I'm on NPR, um, <laughs> maybe a little stronger and angrier this week if I can. You, you know, uh, I, I, I generally get the feedback that I have a, a voice and a face for radio, so uh, it seems to, to keep fitting here. So, Okay. All right, so let's go to our first segment for the day. Um, first segment we're going to call What's Going On, and Bane and I will just kind of go through some Current events going on with us or current events in the, the strength arena. Yeah. So, Ben, I'll let you take it with your story. I've been waiting two weeks to hear now. <laughs> so, uh, well, uh, I'm back training, too, so it's, it's kind of a thing. I'm sure we'll talk about that as we go through you know, more and more episodes, how our trainings are going. But I am back training again. I was back about a, a week after uh, uh, Worlds in, in August. But the, uh, the story that I have been withholding from Eric because he wanted to save it for the podcast uh, was my trip to the Olympia. So I've been to the Arnold Expo uh, the last four years. Uh, really enjoy it. Always enjoy going to those kind of things because I, I do like seeing this kind of the uh, the party atmosphere that is these expos. Uh, a little different than the ones I go to for work. So it's really, really fun, but I always wanted to go to the Olympia. Uh, that kind of was... And the Olympia is in Vegas, correct? It is in Las Vegas, yes. One of my favorite places to go. I am a degenerate. I love going to Las Vegas. Don't at me. Uh, unless you want to go with me, then we can go to Vegas together. Uh, so decided to go and, and almost canceled last minute and uh, talked to actually another couple uh, when we were at the hotel in Orlando, and they just raved about the hotel my wife and I had booked for this uh, this uh, weekend. And it's the Alara, uh, which right off the Strip, but is connected to the Miracle Mile, which then opens up onto the Strip. So if you've never been, you know, obviously Las Vegas, famous for the Strip uh, and all the uh, – um, casinos and everything there and the miracle mile is this huge mall that is literally a mile to walk around tons of shops really really cool stuff uh fantastic lobster rolls by the way if you like seafood so uh i love anything with lobster yeah so great lobster rolls i had there uh very good hungover food by the way and so (laughs) the first night we're there i start drinking at like 10 a.m like we're at the at o'hare our flight's already delayed i'm like i'm drinking i don't care i'm on vacation so by about 10 30 or so i'm i'm pretty well gone uh, that evening, you know, we were walking around Vegas. It's hot. I'm fat. Uh, so I get dehydrated pretty quick. And, you know, even though we're eating all that kind of stuff. So at like 10, 30, 10, 45, I just pass out on the sectional in the, uh, in the room. And I wake up at probably one thirty or so. My wife's in bed. She'd had a couple drinks. You know, she was just kind of laying low because, yeah, the next day we're going to sit out at the pool and hang out with her friend. Her best friend is actually a dealer, um, at the Cromwell, which is also on the strip. And so I said, hey, you know what? I'm going to go see Sonia and uh, decided to go downstairs. So get dressed real quick, head downstairs. And 
as in walking out of the Alara, the Alara again gets right onto the Miracle Mile, and the shops are all closed. It's two thirty in the morning, but the mile itself you can walk through. It's a way to you know some people will come off the strip when it's hot, uh, cool off a little bit, and um, there's a couple of facilities, you no know, bathrooms, all that kind of stuff you can use in there. Is this inside? This is inside. Okay. So as I'm walking out of the Alara, this pretty young lady is walking in, and I'm just about to the door. She touches me on the chest and says, "Oh no, no, they're closed, honey." I'm like, "Well, wait a minute, no." And now. Granted, I've been awake for probably 30 minutes. I've been drinking for the last 12-ish hours. Uh, I'm not exactly coherent. So, you know, the hamster is, he's trying to get on the wheel, but he's falling off. And she starts turning me around. I said, no, no, it's, it's open. There's people in there. So, oh, no, no, they're, they're leaving. It's, it's closed. It's closed. So she, she actually gets me to turn around. And I look back. And, and again, I'm still confused. Like, no, no, no. It is open. And then she says to me, we need to go back up to the room. Oh boy! And I'm like, whoa, no, no, sorry, that's that's not gonna happen. She says, no, 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 we, it's time to go back to the room. No, no, honey, um, my wife's not gonna like that. And she says, oh no, she'll love that. I'm like, no, it, unless you feel like getting stabbed tonight, then that's not gonna happen. She's like, oh, I really wanted to get stabbed tonight. <laughs> I I kid you not. I said, I, I I hear what you're saying, and trust me, my single days, no problem, but. My wife would actually put a knife in you, and I don't feel like dumping a body tonight. So thank you. I appreciate it. Uh, not going to happen. So at, during this whole time, she actually linked up arms with me and was, like, holding on. What? Yeah. And so I, I, I tried to be smooth about it, but I, I get my arm out of there. And she goes to say something else. I did not realize until I saw the corner of my eye, I see some movement, and there's a couple that watch this whole exchange. <laughs> Probably, uh, probably a little younger than me, you know, like early 30s, late 20s. The woman says, well, he may not be ready to go back to the room, but I am. <laughs> and this guy looks at me with I, the mix of emotions is, I can only say, is like part excitement, part fear, uh, part surprise slash shock. And, and just that look of just, is, is this really happening? There, there's no way this is happening right now. So she wanders towards them. I walk out <laughs> to the strip, and I you exit stage right. Yes, I, I exit, and then I head to uh, I grab a piece of pizza, and I head to to the Cromwell. So that was my story from the Olympia. We did not go to the expo. We didn't do anything there. We just hung out in Vegas the whole weekend. So you guys didn't actually go to the Olympia. We did not go to the Olympia. We booked a hotel, flights, the whole thing to go to the Olympia. We did not go. Oh wow! I was going to ask how the powerlifting meet was, and yeah, all that did, kind of good didn't stuff. see it. But I did actually get to hang out with uh, Rich Gaspari uh, at the pool on Sunday. So that was kind of cool. Okay. Yeah. So for those who are bodybuilding fans, you know who he is. So that is my uh, my Olympia story, and that was uh, that was what went on. So you had to wait two weeks for that. Yeah, yeah. That's. <laughs> I mean, that's good. Uh, I, I was not expecting that uh, you didn't even go to the Olympia when you were there. So you know, and what it came down to is we we wanted to go, and we talked about it. And I asked Nick, and I'm like, "What do you want to do with this vacation?" It's just you and me. We're here. We this beautiful room. By the way, the living room, the shade that comes down, there was a projector right above the door, and so we watched the Iowa-Iowa State game on this 8-foot by 6-foot screen on our window. It was incredible. Wow. Yeah, it was awesome. So she said, you know what? I just want to hang out in the room, hang out of the pool. I want to get sunburned and get drunk with you. And I'm like, you know what? I can do that. Let's do it. So that, uh, that was our Olympia trip, and uh, we'll probably go back next year and do it again. <laughs> so no Olympia, only Vegas, basically. Only Vegas, a lot of Vegas. A lot of <laughs> whole Vegas. lot of Vegas. So uh, what's going on with you, man? 
Um, you know, we're about a month out now from the Chicago Strength Expo. Yes. Um, we've got the WPC Can-Am that's filling up. Got over 100 lifters over a couple days. Awesome. And then we've got the WPO Finals returning, which will be broadcast on ESPN3. So that Five. Is, so that is pretty exciting stuff. Um, Chicago Strength Expo will be October 26th, 27th, 28th at mm-hmm. Pheasant Run, the Mega Center. Mega. Uh, hashtag Mega. <laughs> Uh, look out for that soon. Uh, maybe another day I'll tell kind of the story on how all this WPO deal came to came to be. But uh, we're going to have Olympic lifting, strongman, powerlifting, uh, kettlebell sports. Maz wrestling, I believe, yeah. Maz wrestling has canceled. Oh, hashtag ouch. Hashtag newsflash. <laughs> wow. <laughs> just going to insert my, pull my foot out of my mouth oh, right now. That's all right. It wasn't my fault. He just, uh, <laughs> the promoter decided he couldn't get the insurance mm. and couldn't get the sanction something like that but it's all good we'll still have a good event that's important kids so um yeah i think that's all that got going on i'll probably speak on more of that in upcoming weeks but uh, and there's probably a good story to be told maybe even after it's over is a good time to tell that story yeah um we'll, we'll see how it goes i think it's going to go well but uh there is there's a lot of stuff going on there definitely there's there's just a lot of stuff going on that whole like two weeks time frame with meets and stuff i mean all here in chicago is a lot of cool stuff yeah i mean you got usapl raw nationals coming here two weeks before that yep i think basically two weeks from now yeah we could practically throw bane well maybe bane could throw me yeah it's a hold on a second here (laughs) from 2xl to the weston where they're holding usapl raw nationals yeah we have actually run two national meets there at the weston i've done national meet there 2016 and 2017 i'm saying yes sir Yes, sir. Um, and then you've got Surge's Pro-Am, I think, uh, I don't know, it's the weekend before that, I want to say, right? I think it's the weekend before, yeah. Yeah, the 12th of October. It's basically a bye week, and then it goes right into the Right, and then we've got the WPC. Strength Expo yeah. yep, after that. So a lot going on there. But I think the main topic we want to talk about today was the rise of RAW. RAW, 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 RAW. All caps RAW. Yes. And that's at least how it started. So Bane and I have kind of got a timeline. I went and did, you know, a, a bit... A bit of research, and this is not going to be exhaustive of, like, you know, every instance of Raw. In fact, we'll probably talk a little bit more next week about um, how the sport started off as equipped. All I can tell you is I was definitely Raw before 2000. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I'm sure you were a player. But well, oh. let's let, let's start off when I started in the sport because that's the only context I can come from. Year two thousand, um, when I started the sport, APF Illinois State Meet two thousand, and I would say, I was thinking about this the other day. When it comes to equipped multiply lifting, mm-hmm. Chicago has to be one of the top cities, and that's partly because Ernie Franz founded the APF here. A lot of the gyms in the area kind of can trace their roots back to Franz Gym. Mm-hmm. This gym, two XL, Monster Garage. Um, originally Zen Zen Barbell, which is now kind of led into Barbell 413. Yeah. Um, a few gyms have led into Barbell 413. Sure. Uh, you know, a lot of the gyms in the area, Rudy's, Rudy's gym, mm-hmm. not, a, not a super public gym, um, but a lot of gyms kind of trace their, their lineage back to Franz gym, and that was always Multiply. Yep. Um, that's all there was. Uh, so when I started in 2000, my first meet, got a double ply poly squat suit, told that story last week. Mm-hmm. Um, when I started, um, I didn't really think anything of it. I, it wasn't like, oh, why aren't I lifting raw? I don't, I don't even know if I knew what that word was. That was like meat, like raw meat. Yeah. I, and I don't mean competition. I mean M-E-A-T. Yeah, yeah. I, I didn't either. I, I remember because my, my first like 
vision of strength was I used to stay up and watch World's Strongest Man with my dad. Sure. And those guys all they had, you know, lifting suits. Yeah. And, and they talked about their training in, in, in uh, various types of equipment. And so I knew nothing different. I thought, you know, nothing of, you know, knee sleeves and, and knee wraps and all that kind of stuff because that's, that's what was – it was the style at the time. Yeah. Um, there was raw lifting back then. There just – I don't think was any raw lifting here in Chicago. There was basically at that time there would have been – the APF would have been kind of the main federation. Um, the, the And and 1A, 1B would have been USAPL at that time with Dennis Brady mm-hmm. who uh, – runs B&W Gym in Chicago. At that time, he was running some really big USAPL meets. He ran the Viking Open, mm-hmm. um, which I refereed at, and it was always a two-platform meet. Um, tons of lifters, and that, but that was all single-ply. There was no raw. There may have been some people that lifted raw, and we had people that lifted raw in APF meets, um, but there was no raw division. I kind of first started hearing about that in, the, in those early 2000s on some of the message boards, um, I lifted in the 2003 AAU Junior Olympics in Detroit, and at that time, that was the first meet I had gone to that there was an, quote, equipped and, quote, unequipped division, hmm. and it was probably split about half and half. I lifted single-ply, and I had done that just to kind of do something different, lift and single-ply, walked out. Um, I had lifted mostly APF prior to that, um, but in my research and remembering back to those message boards, the AAU, which... If you want to go way back, mm-hmm. powerlifting started in the AAU and then went from the AAU to the USPF. That was kind of your original powerlifting federation. Okay. Um, AAU then readopted powerlifting as a sport years later, I'm guessing late 90s. Mm-hmm. And I believe at that time, Al Siegel and the AAU added a raw division. Al Siegel may have been the guy that popularized that term, if I'm not mistaken. It could have been somebody else. Um, I think he has since passed away mm-hmm. at me if somebody can give me his status, but I remember him on some of the message boards. He left the AAU and formed the ADAU, the Anti-Drug Athletes United. So it would have been all drug-free and all raw. Uh, it just seems like something made up for like the Dodgeball sequel. <laughs> That's the name of the division. It, it, to be fair, it was a pretty small federation. It was mostly just in the Northeast. I think he was based out of Pennsylvania. Mm. Um, but at that time, the AAU was running some decent-sized meets and had a raw division. Um, and at that time, really, the argument wasn't like now where it's raw versus equipped. The argument was multiply versus single-ply. Yeah. And it was single-ply was USAPL, USPF, and multiply was APF and offshoots of the APF. At that time, would have been the IPA. I don't know. There may have been some other federations back then. but I, I enjoy a good IPA. <laughs> Uh, but that was basically it. It was single ply, multiply. And, and honestly, my first memory of finding powerlifting on the internet was finding goheavy.com's message board. And there was a huge argument on there. Like, I, I don't even know if millennials can picture what a, what a pin bulletin board message board looks like, <laughs> kind of like Reddit, but with no upvoting or downvoting. Yeah. So that's probably the closest equivalent. It was, it's kind of like Reddit looks like now. Um, but the big argument was on Franz bench shirts versus Enzer bench shirts. Ooh. And I remember Jamie Harris and some other guy arguing back and forth about it. And I was like, why are they arguing about bench shirts on here? And I didn't really understand what a bench shirt was, but I also couldn't figure out why they were spending, you know, seemingly days going back and forth arguing about it. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, that's uh, – I, I, I wish I was a part of the, the sport at, at that time because it just it fascinates me when I hear this this history – and and really, you know, kind of what we're going to run into is how 
everything up until, you know, because when I started like lifting, like for sport was around 2000. So that's, that is right around when it seems like this, this rise of raw was bubbling. Well, and what we'll talk about is really the rise of raw coincides with the rise of powerlifting in general. I think back in those days, a big meet would have been a hundred lifters, like 90 to a hundred lifters would have been a very big meet back in those days. Uh, in the early 2000s, and I look back at some of my meet results from back then, and you know, compared to what we get now, you know, a big meet is a small would be considered a small meet for us now. Yeah, and I think the rise of raw coincides with the rise of powerlifting in general. Um, and we'll talk about why we think that happened. But the first time that I ran a raw meet, and to give you some context, the first meet I ran would have been 2004. We talked about that last mm-hmm. week. Summer Bash 1 in Waukegan would have been 2004. Fast forward a little bit, 2009 in Willowbrook at my job at the time, Velocity Sports. We ran the first Illinois Raw Power Challenge. Um, The APF first established a raw division in 2008. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure about other federations, but I can can tell you because I was around back then. And at that time, raw for the APF, they said, hey, if it's going to be truly raw, it's just going to be a belt. In fact, some on the executive committee at that time wanted it to not even be a belt. Wow. They just wanted it to be singlet and shoes. Um, a year later in 2009, they voted to add wrist wraps. Okay. I don't know that wrist wraps really add a whole bunch, but again, the thought process on the executive committee was, hey, we've got equipped. If you really want to be, have no assistance at all, you shouldn't have any assistance. Yeah. Um, be nice to clear up that elbow sleeve rule. Oh, gosh. <laughs> Yeah, still bitter about that one, but yeah, we we'll, we'll chat about that when we get to classic, I suppose. <laughs> but that first Illinois Raw Power Challenge had uh, fifty lifters, and I'm going to quickly run through some statistics, v- somewhat quickly, and through the, the kind of progression of the Illinois Raw Power Challenge. But that first year was a decent sized year. That was around the time that Raw was starting to gain some traction, the mm-hmm. mid mid to late 2000s. One Eric Lillibridge lifted in that meet. Um, who is the nutrition guy who's lifted USAPL that lifted that meet? Oh, gosh. I should have looked back. Lane Norton? Lane Norton lifted in that, the first Illinois Raw Power Challenge. And Lane. And he, uh, he had a film crew there with him. Oh, my word. Following him around. Um, and that was, not, that was probably my worst run meet, and there's various reasons why. Mm-hmm. Um, Velocity, where I was working, was about to close. E- and the heaters weren't working very well, so it was kind of cold in there. Um, we decided for some reason to try doing the meet with most of the lights off so that you could see the projector on the wall. And so it was like cold and dark and it was just, and it seems horrible. <laughs> it was an odd atmosphere and it was just, it ended up not being a very good choice. Philosophy is a great place to run meets, 20,000 square feet. We oh, had awesome. turf basketball court. We ran the meets on the basketball court, had a big weight area. Um, but that was not my best meet. And so the next year we had a little bit, dip, bit of a dip. We were down to 33 lifters in 2010. And seven of those were from my team. So there's about 25 lifters from outside the gym there. That was the first time that Ken Stone and I came up with the term classic. Mm. Um, So if anybody wants to claim they had classic before 2009 or 2010, you know, at me. But from my (laughs) knowledge, that's the first time that anybody had classic raw. And that would have been raw with wraps. Ew. (laughs) And because we had a big, (laughs) we had a big, uh, you know, contingent of people seemingly that were asking for that from the first year. Mm-hmm. In fact, I remember, I don't know if it was on Facebook or maybe one of the message boards, but I remember Eric Lillibridge mm-hmm. lifted in the first raw meet and said afterward, I think he squatted 
you know, I'll, I'll, I'll maybe I'll go back and check the results. I think he squatted in the 700s, mm-hmm. and he said, I'm never going to do another meet without knee wraps, which, hey, that's his choice. Mm-hmm. Um, but I know he said that it was very weird, and he didn't felt like he'd get as tight, which makes sense. Um, but I remember he said after the meet he probably wouldn't do another meet without wraps. Um, but from there, from 2010 on is when we really saw the rise. Uh, and these first uh, – from 2010 to 2013, we're at my job at RightFit, which is about a 6,000-square-foot space. These numbers probably could have been higher, but we did put a cap on things because it was one platform, one day, yep. one session. So we jumped up to 78 lifters in 2011, 77 lifters in 2012, so about the same, 80 lifters in 2013. And again, we, we had a, a pretty hard cap there, which probably would have been around probably technically 75 mm-hmm. with bench only. Uh, 2014, uh, was the year that we started 2XL powerlifting. And mm-hmm. so we had to move the meet to Rich East High School. I'm fairly certain we ran two platforms that day and that would have been 89 lifters. Um, in 2015, we jumped up to 146 lifters. I was there. Were you there at that I one? Was. I was. Oh, I don't remember that. Yep. I, I remember distinctly. I don't know who was on the mic, but my last deadlift was 666 and he said it freaked him out. Uh, and I believe, if I'm not mistaken, that would have been not just a two-platform, but probably a two-session day. Does that sound correct? Like a morning uh, and afternoon? I don't recall that, but it was definitely two-platform. Yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm guessing. Like, just, I'm, I'm fairly certain it was not two-session. It was hmm. it was definitely two-platform, though. Yeah, jeez. That's a lot of lifters in one day. Yeah. Hard to believe. 146 lifters. Um, well, I guess we could have done 60 and 60. It might have been just No, four. if you're saying two set, like two days? No, it wasn't two days. It was one day. Okay. Oh, you know what? We might have just done 60 and 60 or thereabouts on each platform. Something like that, yeah. Yeah, a lot of freaking lifters in one day. It was. It was a lot. We jumped up to 152 lifters um, in 2016. Mm -hmm. Um, And and some of these do include some bench-only lifters, so that you know, skews the numbers. It's not as many as it appears because they're only lifting three times. The, the one meet I ever competed at 220. The, the damn bench-only lifters. Yeah. Uh, but we moved it to 2XL in 2016. Um 152 in 2016, 160 in 2017. Last year, 164, we moved to meet the three days. Wow. So we've gone from 2009, 50 lifters, um, and down to 33 lifters in 2010. Mm-hmm. And it was a very small meet, just basically a gym meet with a couple Team Stone lifters and others. Yep. 164 this last year, a three-day event. Yeah, and that's what it is. It's, it's an event at that point. And, and this year, you guys will probably be similar. Yeah, we're doing three days again this year, and we, yeah. we expect it. And most of these years, we've had a hard cap on it. Um, and the reason we didn't open this meet up as much as others is because it's in December, mm-hmm. and there's always the plausibility of snow in Chicago in December. So yep. if we are moving equipment, or even if it's here, it's just we wanted to kind of keep it small, either at the gym or not move for multiple days, although we did do that once. Um so from there, um, I looked up a, a couple of statistics for my other major meet I've run since 20, 2004 is the Summer Bash. So this first Summer Bash was about the Summer Bash, the, summer, the Chicago Summer Bash. Started off with 45 lifters. Um, bear in mind, at this time, there was no raw division, at least mm-hmm. in my meets. Um, we had a big jump up in 20, 2005. Um, 90 lifters for the second Summer Bash, featuring lifters like Laura Phelps, Becca Swanson, Bill Carpenter, and two very young Lillibridges, Eric and Ernie Jr. That's awesome. All equipped. Um, in fact, I think I'm going to try to maybe screen grab that and post up somewhere the, the results of the 
2005 Chicago Summer Bash. Um, and I, I'm not going to go through all the years of the Summer Bash, but the first time we offered a Raw division at the Summer Bash was actually its its lowest year since the first one was 2010. Mm-hmm. Um, we actually, for years, my wife and I had kind of gone back and forth on like, should we run it one day? Should we run it two days? Mm-hmm. And we finally made the jump that year and ran it for two days. Bench only, deadlift only on the second day. First day is full power. I only ended up with 45 lifters. Wow. So then we, we went back to one day for a while after that. Um, a while? A while. Uh, in 2013 is when you really saw the jump in raw in the summer bash, mm-hmm. um, that's what the now, in 2010, 2011, 2012 in the summer bash, we only offered raw as a subdivision. So it wasn't like raw open, raw masters, raw submaster. It was right. just like that was a division you could enter, and it was just raw and just the weight classes because right. we figured, hey, this was just an extra division like masters mm-hmm. or like submaster or like teenage, and everybody else would lift quote normal, right. And when I started the raw meet, actually, in, in that, around that time, um, and remember, this was 2009, so before we offered it in the Summer Bash, the thought process was we would just have as an extra thing, you know, once a year, we would have a raw meet, mm-hmm. and it would be kind of something different in that meet. In that 2009 meet, you actually had a few equipped lifters, like uh, my former training partner, Irv Demansky, that just said, ah, I'll just try something different mm-hmm. and lift raw. And we thought, well, we're not going to offer every meet as raw. We'll just, most of the meets will be normal. Little did you know. Right. Most of the meets will be, you know, equipped. Mm-hmm. And once a year, we'll just offer, you know, kind of a different product, a different service, and we'll, we'll offer a raw meet. But the tide had already started to turn by that point. Yep. Um, and those first three years, again, it was just a, just a raw division, no subdivision. When we really saw the jump back up is when we decided to offer a, quote, full raw division. So raw all the weight classes, yep. all, all the subdivisions yep. and the weight classes. And in 2013, we had 90 lifters in the Summer Bash. By a cursory glance on my, my roster, that was a majority raw. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we really saw the big jump. Um, you could see this in the, the, the raw meat numbers as well. Right around that 2014, 2015 is when you just saw the explosion. Um, we had 158 lifters in 2014 and that meet is that is the meet now they're thinking about it that we ran a dual session got it um that's 100 almost 160 lifters in one day on two platforms notable because that was the weekend before we were moving everything into 2xl powerlifting wow the first 2xl powerlifting and it fit well because we were already moving the big equipment yeah instead of moving it back to right fit we just moved it on to the new 2xl but i mean we were not done I mean, because imagine we probably had at least two or three flights mm-hmm. per platform right. in an AM session. That took till about two. And then we ran an entire another session of lifting from two to like six. Good Lord. Then load up the trailer with two monoliths, two benches, kilo plates, bars. And Jeez. I don't think we unloaded it immediately. I think we might have waited until the next weekend to truly unload everything. Right. Around that time, we had started putting the flooring down and we'd started moving in some of the other equipment we'd bought. But that, that was probably as far as like hardest meets I've ever run. Yeah. That 2014 summer bash, because we didn't realize how big it was going to be. So we just assumed, Hey, you go back to 2010. One day was enough. Yeah. I mean, we went to two days, we didn't have enough. So let's scale it back to one day. Yep. And that, that worked. And you couldn't get one more lifter to get, to have that difference between 2013 and 2014. What's that? You couldn't get one more lifter to have that difference? 
Why? It'd be 69. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so just, again, for those who don't know, I am just a man-child. I really, really am. Yeah, he's he's sitting there looking at the numbers, doing some calculations. Oh, yeah, it took me at on. least four minutes to figure that yeah. out. 90 lifters in 2013, 158 lifters in 2014. So, yeah. Uh and it was then the next year, 2015, that we decided, okay, this summer bash is really taking off. So we went to two days yep. and two platforms, which had stayed until this past year when we moved it to three days, one mm-hmm. platform. Um, that's another story for another day. That's 2015 was my first summer bash. Okay. And that was a big one. It was. It was huge. Huge. So in the APF, again, we said Raw started about 2008, 2009, we added wrist wraps. Mm-hmm. It was probably 2009, 2010 that they started adding a Raw division at Nationals. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you look at the records, that when you started to see records get set in the APF was around 2010. Mm-hmm. The meet directors didn't immediately adopt Raw. I mean, I was kind of, I, don't, I wouldn't say I was opposed to it. I, I didn't have any problem with Raw. My only holdback or my only apprehension was that I already felt like there was too many divisions. And this There's is, a lot. This, that's a whole other discussion for another day, but I felt like if we added, and gosh, we've gone beyond that now, but I felt like there was already a lot of divisions when you consider APF and AAPF. All the weight classes, all the age divisions. Now mm-hmm. you're basically doubling that by having equipped and raw, and then, oh, by the way, in 2015, following Ken Stone and I's lead, the APF added classic raw to add knee wraps. And now you've got single-ply, oh, God. multiply, Classic. Don't even get me started. That's another episode. Fire him, please. Oh, you want to talk? <laughs> you want to talk? Talk about uh, getting me angry. Start talking about single ply. That's the whole point, man. Oh Strength my, and anger. Oh my gosh, there, there's just too many divisions at a certain point, uh, and I don't have any problem with any of those divisions. But we don't need all the weight classes, all the age divisions, APF, AAPF, and four different equipment categories. It's a, fu- a future episode is going to be single ply is bullshit. <laughs> and I'm going to just leave that out there for right now. <laughs> I cannot wait for the, to do that episode. That might be my angriest episode ever. Single ply is bullshit. I have no problem with single ply lifters. Blaine Sumner is actually one of my favorite follows. He's, he's, he's a, a phenomenal, phenomenal he's lifter. super strong. Um, Blaine will probably never listen to this. But if he does, you'd, you'd be welcome in the WPO. No, he, you know, he may happen to wander in during, during nationals. Yeah, he might. He might. Know. He might if he's there. I don't. Does he lift raw anymore? I thought he only lifts single ply. But you never know. He may. I mean, he's one of their two or three like prize lifters. He may yeah. show up. Yeah, you're not wrong. So that's kind of the history of of me looking back at you know my meets and the APF. That's not an exhaustive history of of raw. But I would, in looking at some of the other federations, mm-hmm. I would guess that their rise in you know equipped versus raw lifting. And that's one of the things people talk about is, has equipped lifting really gone away or is like equipped lifting basically stayed similar? And I, I do think it took a dip there in the, the early 2010s, mm-hmm. but I don't think equipped lifting has gone down as much as raw lifting has gone up. I think the number of equipped lifters going back to when I started in 2000, it's probably not that much different. In fact, there might be more. Yeah. And I think actually Dave Tate did a, a little hot take on this, uh, gosh, probably a month or so ago. Um or yeah, the, the number of equipped lifters is, is roughly the same. It's a little higher just because there just generally is more lifters. Right. Uh, and, and, you know, it's nice. You have those these databases like Open Power Lifting. You can go and look at this, right? But the, I mean, you can use whatever term you want. Exponential growth, uh, hyper growth, explosion. It, what has happened with RAW is, is unbelievable almost compared to how uh, incremental the growth has been on, on the equipped side. Right. 
and 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 obviously that's you know why we call this the rise of raw because I mean the 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 numbers are, are really really staggering if you look at it. if you pull up openpilot.org you're talking tens of thousands almost a hundred thousand lifters listed on there just as raw next and we talked about usapl raw nationals mm-hmm. uh we are actually hosting a couple of their coaching clinics here at 2xl powerlifting mm-hmm. and we're you know again a, a walk away so i had some email correspondence with priscilla ribrick one of their uh executive committee members it says they have 1300 lifters pre-registered for it's raw wild. nationals it's that wild. is I mean, that's crazy yeah so you can see just in a microcosm of one meet, Summer Bash started with 45 lifters all equipped. You fast forward 10 years to 2015, you got 165 lifters, 90% and 95% raw. Yep. So that's kind of the history of it. Um, and Bane and I are each going to kind of go through our takes on, you know, what we think, why. You know, why, why did we see equipped lifting go down? Uh, I think when next week we'll talk about, like, why was there equipped lifting? Because that's the question I get from some of my clients and, mm-hmm. and people new to the sport. Like, I think their thought process is like equipped is new. And like people thought, oh, let's add something extra and put on this canvas squat suit. No. Nope. No. It started equipped. Raw is new. I, again, we're, we're, there was some raw lifting going on in the 2000s, no doubt. Maybe even in the late 90s, uh, Al Siegel, AAU might have been doing a little bit of that. But it's really around the mid to, you know, the mid 2000s. We'll say the earliest I even heard about it being getting some traction was right around that 2008, 2009. And that's, again, when we decided to run our first Raw meet. It was not until then that anybody was even talking about Raw, again, except for a very small amount of lifters uh, in AAU and ADAU, which, again, was, you know, they had very small meets in the Northeast. Um, and that's not to discount any of the, what they're doing, but, again, it was, it was a definitive minority. The talk was single-ply, multi-ply powerlifting. Yeah. So uh, my number one reason why you've seen the rise of raw, and it's, it's quite simply, it's the advancement of the equipment. We'll talk about this next week more of where equipment came from. But if you take the double ply equipment, even what I got in 2000 as my first squat suit, and you take that and you compare it to the single ply squat suit or bench shirt of today, it's not even comparable, the material. No. no. And that's why I'll go on my rant in a couple weeks on why I think single ply in the current day is bullshit. Because single ply today is stronger than double ply, multi ply of the 1990s and 2000s. So, it, and you know, that, that is the, the advancement is good. There's nothing wrong with that. Uh, but I hear what you're saying is that the, with the advancement of that, there, there comes, you know, there's costs involved. Right. Know, so there, there's a barrier to entry. Uh, but then, yeah, you, you look at like single ply. Is it really single ply? <laughs> I mean, I mean, when you it, look at how it's woven. I mean, is it is it? Tr- yes, I get it, it's a single layer, but it's it's so much different. It's not even the same material. I mean, com- comparatively, it is like comparing a a singlet to you know a, a multiply suit. Now, the old uh, 1980s, they called them super suits. The old 1980s super suits almost were like just a tight singlet with you know. And again, all they thought was, hey. Instead of making the singlet out of a super stretchy Lycra blend, mm-hmm. let's just make it out of polyester. Yeah. And let's make it kind of tight. It'll kind of support your joints, almost like, you know, uh, knee sleeves do. That, that's the equivalent. It, the squat suits in those days were almost like knee sleeves you wore on your body. You wore on your hips. Mm-hmm. And because there were straps on the suit, that added some, some rebound power. Um, but you compare that to now. If anybody, go on Google 
put throw it in your Google machine. <laughs> the Inzer uh, Leviathan Ultra Pro, which is a double ply canvas suit, sands on its own, man, with laces on the sides. Um, and I don't think people are getting any more out of that suit than the old canvas suits. But it, what it's done is that it's made it easier to customize and get it mm-hmm. super super tight. But look at that canvas lace up. Mm-hmm. Looks like a corset squat suit, which I've worn. I'm not hating. Um, but compare that to the super suits of the 80s. The big, the big difference, and, and bench shirts were not even as common up until the late 90s. Mm-hmm. I mean, there was a whole other episode we can talk about. Ernie Franz starting with bench shirts. John Enzer. Oh, that's going to be a whole episode. John Enzer <laughs> had a patent that he used for bench shirts. And he was technically the only person supposed to be making bench shirts, so there weren't a, there weren't a lot of bench shirts. Now in Chicago, you could you could find a Franz bench shirt, right? But the big change in bench shirts happened um, in the in the kind of mid two thousands when it was mainly Metal Militia out of New York decided to cut the back of their shirt, make their backs make their shirts totally open back, and that changed the game unbelievably. Hmm. The open back shirts changed the bench shirt game. Additionally. Titan kind of did a similar thing um, after the patent that Enzer had ran out. Instead of having, imagine the same material on your bench shirt that you see, imagine it around your entire body, mm-hmm. that same super freaking tight polyester. Putting people into those bench shirts, closed backs, which was always allowed in the USPF and USAPL, was, I mean, impossible. There's, there's stories of guys in Asia, you know, fitting themselves into such a tight bench shirt that they had to be cut out of it afterward wow but titan introduced the stretchy back so essentially imagine like a singlet material on the back of your shirt Mm -hmm. that would essentially mimic the same kind of not exactly the same but similar to the open back shirt Mm -hmm. so and that's when it's like okay bench shirts became a whole nother animal and like you said a whole nother cost so that's when the equipment got to where okay instead of just putting on a squat suit and maybe need a bench shirt maybe not at the end of your training cycle, and it's basically lifting the same mm-hmm. to the multiply equipment today. You got briefs, canvas squat suit, open back multiply bench shirt. It's it's almost a different lift. It's a different game. Yep. And the cost and the technical skill required is not only just a barrier entry of money, but it's a barrier entry to learning how to do it. It's not mm-hmm. just hey, I'm going to go in and squat bench deadlift. People get mad when I say raw raw lifting is easy. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Bane's already getting mad. No, no, I'm, I'm just, okay. I know there's a punchline to this, so, so I want to hear yeah, it. Yeah, raw lifting is easier than equipped lifting. Now, is it easier to lift the same amount of weight, raw versus equipped? No, obviously you can lift more of the equipment. That's the point. Mm-hmm. But technically speaking, when you're lifting raw, you just go up and lift the weight. Yep. When you're lifting equipped, it's like, hey, I got to get into my squat suit. I got to have it a certain tightness. I got to get my knees wrapped. I got to get my wrist wraps. I got to get my belt on. There's a much higher level of technical skill required, and the training, uh, I mean, the training for equipped, Bane could probably attest to this, the the boys and girls up at Monster Garage who are lifting equipped. I mean, the, the one-hour squat workout Bane does is going to take three hours for mm-hmm. equipped, just getting in and out of the equipment. Yep. It's physically harder to do. Now, again, don't don't make that make it sound like I'm saying that if you lift the same weight raw versus equipped, it's going to be... It's obviously easier equipped if you get anything out of your equipment. Mm-hmm. But just from a practical, technical standpoint, raw lifting's easier. No, I, I agree with that 100%. And, and some people think I'm crazy when I say that. And because I, I would say I'm one of the few 
raw raw guys because again I don't wear these sleeves or knee or anything. I, we'll, I, we'll change that. Yeah, you know, who knows? Uh, I have complete respect for the guys in and gals in the equipment because I've always looked at it like it is. It is very similar to playing, you know, full sided gridiron football versus sevens to playing indoor soccer, outdoor soccer, you know, real football. I, it's very, very again. They're similar games. At the end of the day, what is, what is the quote unquote goal? Think, thinking of soccer, right? Is to put the ball in the net. That is the goal. It's literally what they call it. It is a totally different game playing indoor versus outdoor. And if anybody's you know ever done that, they understand. Same thing. You're playing full side football versus sevens. Totally different game. Yes, the end result is the same. You want to score touchdowns, but it's so much more technical. There's so much more, especially on the seven side, so much more speed involved. There's just a lot more things that are going to go on. It's the same thing with uh, equipped, uh, especially multiply versus uh, raw. Raw, you have a much wider window and a much, that's uh, oh, what I'm looking for, R- really just a, a, a easier way to kind of work around when things go wrong in the middle of the lift. The, the margin for error with Thank equipped you. is much smaller. Much, much. T- I, I mean, you are th- literally threading the needle. Right. And that's why, especially when the WPO started to get big in the early 2000s, and you saw all these guys bombing in the bench because these multiply open back shirts, there is a super small margin for error. And there these is. guys, the weight that they can touch with is so heavy relative to their max that they have to open super heavy. Now, the, the great technicians like guys around here, like Matt Manuth yeah. and Barzine, yeah. they have Steve. figured, Steve Brock, they've figured out ways to open with a lighter weight and still touch and press it out. I mean, if it takes such a heavy weight to touch on your bench shirt that you can't lock it out, well, then obviously it's too heavy. Yep. And you probably got people that have never seen a multiply bench before. They're like, what do you mean? You can't touch. Well, maybe that's <laughs> when we talk about our geared podcast. We can talk about that more. But I can, that, I can actually speak to that. That's an example of like, gosh, can you imagine a raw lifter not being able to touch their chest when they bench? Yeah. I mean, that's not even... Just drop it. <laughs> right. But in equipped, you could take your max raw. And you, mm. in fact, if you're an equipped bencher, you know what you're doing. There's probably a very low chance that you can touch your chest with your raw max and a properly fitted bench shirt. Oh, I, I would almost guarantee that. And so the the equipment has gotten so advanced that it's become a different animal. And so I get it. It's like it almost, it was almost inevitable. The equipment got so advanced, even the single ply again. We'll talk about that when we do my single plies bullshit but, episode. But what's funny is that the terminology used for equipped has now been drawn over to raw. Oh, I misgrooved it. Right. There's no... <laughs> You don't there's, misgroove a raw there's no, lift. Right. There's no groove. I mean, granted, there's technique in raw, but the technique level and the the technical skill, we'll say it. Again, people have used this analogy, but I'm going to I'm gonna use it again. It's like drag racing with, you know, funny car versus, quote, stock car. Yep. I'm going to say single ply is stock car because those aren't stock cars. Sure. Raw is maybe like, you know, actual like on the street drag racing. Fast and furious. Right. You just take your car in the street yep. and you race it. You're not... You're not necessarily putting anything extra into it. You're just no. going out with what you got and racing it. Mm-hmm. Single ply is stock car. Quote, stock car. Mm-hmm. And multiply is, I don't know what the other levels of drag racing are, but funny car or some kind of other crazy car that's all. Yeah, that's the one that does the quarter mile in like 2.3 seconds. Right, that's multiply. And none of those, I mean, obviously people are going to have their preferences on which one they like, mm-hmm. um, but that doesn't make any any one of them 
better or worse, at least in my mind. And I'll, I'll say the same in powerlifting. Again, like Bain said, the goal in powerlifting has always been to lift as much weight as possible in the rules of the sport. Yep. You don't get any extra points for pressing extra range of motion with a closer grip and having no arch. Yep. You don't get extra points for pulling conventional versus sumo. Ew, how, how would you compare those two? It's disgusting. <laughs> you don't get any extra points for squatting deeper in the squat. No. Nope. That's the same thing if equipment is allowed, which it almost always has been. Yeah. I mean, that's... Again, we're, we're going to have the whole equipment episode next week, so we're, we'll focus on the raw, but... Uh, well, but it's intertwined because the equipment got so advanced. That's why people went to raw. I get it. And raw is good. I like raw. So yeah. don't don't take this rant on that. I don't like raw lifting. I don't like I like raw lifters. I like raw lifting. Obviously. Uh I I like Bane, who's a raw lifter at yeah. least. That's true. But it is it's different and, and they they've become so divergent. Mm-hmm. And that the powerlifting became was if raw lifting had not come into existence powerlifting would have become even a smaller niche sport than it was in the early 2000s. And it's still a niche sport now, but it it never would have seen the growth. So we can attribute that to Raw no, definitely. I, I definitely agree. And, you know, again, you have, you have again, the financial barrier to entry. You've got the, the technical skill barrier to entry. Uh, it, th- those things are so huge because, generally speaking, I mean, we're, we're still a microwave culture. And so taking the time to learn how to use this stuff, People don't have that patience. Right. And there's already a technical skill to learning how to squat bench deadlift. Oh, yeah. Squatting to depth, especially. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you when you talk about equipped lifting, especially when you're talking about multiply, I don't know that you can multiply geared lift without a team or at least a crew or at least training partners. No, I don't feel you can. Not, not at a level that is going to help you advance. There's always going to be outliers. Back in the early 2000s when I started, there was lots of lifters that lifted on their own. They were never going to be optimizing. They were never going to be gear whoring it out as much as I was. No. Um, quick quick sidebar story. Uh, 2006 APF Nationals in mm-hmm. New York. Yeah, I believe it was 2006, maybe 2005, somewhere in that range. Um, I wore the same canvas squat suit that I had used for Ernie Franz at 165, now at 181 mm-hmm. and so it was freaking tight yeah and after squatting my best squat 732 which unfortunately got turned down for depth at that meet um i got the lift with it <laughs> yeah i got i got the lift but they didn't give it to me <laughs> um, oh that never gets old there was three dudes from west side helping me yank out of my suit and one of them commented to me, man, Stone, you sure are a gear whore. <laughs> and it, that was before the time we would figured out the method of taking like a bar or a lat pull-down bar and mm-hmm. sticking it at the crotch of the suit to pull it down. Um, we'll have to do a video of that sometime. I don't know that I want to put my canvas squats at any time, on anytime soon. <laughs> Just go on, honey. Put on that thing I like. <laughs> but again, when you think about that, taking three guys to get you out of your squat suit, that's a microcosm right there, again, of how advanced the equipment got and why Raw took off. So that's that's the number one. It's There's the barrier to entry of cost. There's the barrier entry to technical skill. Mm-hmm. There's finding people to do it. I mean, back in the early 2000s, most of the people you saw at meets trained with other people. Yeah. And Dave Tate has talked about this a number of times, kind of the loss of training groups and you know, going to people at your local gym for advice rather than an online coach. And there's nothing wrong with an online coach. I've got some online clients. Mm-hmm. But it's not 
it's not a substitute for good training partners or training with people, in my opinion. I completely I, agree I do that. think that's maybe a negative to raw lifting is that you've seen a lot of lifters that have never, and we'll talk about this at the, at the end, but why I think many raw lifters, and it's inevitable when you get as many people into the sports we've gotten, that you're going to have a higher turnover when you have so many new people mm-hmm. running into the sport, and it's not as niche of a sport, and there's not that higher not that as high of barrier to entry. So that's going to lend itself to a higher turnover. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think because people then don't train with groups, that also lends itself to a higher turnover. Because if you've got a crew that you train with, people that you you come talk to and that, you know, are kind of your extended family, you're you're more likely to stay in that hobby or sport. It's your accountability buddies. Right. So that's the number one reason for me. We'll talk more on equipment next week, but the number two one I think is it's at least as big, um, and that would be the rise of CrossFit. CrossFit, and there's a lot of strength coaches out there and powerlifters that hate on CrossFit. Um, I was actually at a CrossFit gym this weekend. <gasps> no blasphemer. No, no, don't no calm down. I didn't do Fran or Murph or anything like that. It's whatever, man. You were there. You're. I can. I, I can hear them out. One of us. One of us. So there's a, a CrossFit gym in Chicago, CrossFit Defined, that actually has been coming to our raw meets at least since the, at least since 2011. I remember them coming. They might even been they might have had a couple lifters, including the owner David Suter, back in that that 2010 uh, first raw meet we had at RightFit. Mm-hmm. I don't believe any of them were in the first one in 2009. Okay, um, but back in the early 2000s, David Suter and CrossFit Defined were coming to some of our meets. And I think he's doing it about as well as any CrossFit gym. I know I got another sidebar here. He told me about a, after about a year of regular CrossFit, mm-hmm. and this does apply because this is the reason you see people going from CrossFit to powerlifting. He says after about a year of regular CrossFit, you've probably achieved your initial, you know, fitness goals of mm-hmm. you know getting in shape, reducing body fat, getting generally stronger, and then it's like okay, I've I've tackled that goal, you know, what next? And I think. A lot of CrossFitters, and I think along with that, uh, you've got you know kind of the starting strength crew. Um, the CrossFit started in the 2000s. The first CrossFit game was in 20, 2007. Mm-hmm. Starting strength, you know, another kind of popular movement in the strength training world. Um, you know, Ripito was a powerlifter. Yeah. And uh, I think that the first book was uh, released from my research in, in uh, 2007. If somebody's got some different info, you know, at me. But I think, especially CrossFit. <laughs> How many times can we at be in one episode? Uh, somebody could do a count. Uh, yeah. Stacy Hawkins, I know you're probably listening right now, so you can you can do a count for me. <laughs> uh, but I think those two, especially CrossFit, I think starting strength it was a contributor as well. But that got more people, as you said, Bane, introduced to a barbell yep. than any other kind of fitness movement you could ever think of. Going back to the '80s aerobics and you know, we could go through a whole litany of fitness trends, but of all the fitness trends you can think of, I think no one fitness trend has introduced more people to a barbell than CrossFit. Yeah, and and I and I said that to you earlier tonight. You know, when I was training, and, and I think I actually heard that from I think Matt Wallace actually told me that once, but uh, I can't remember exactly who said that. But it, I get as much hate as CrossFit gets. I think it is so important that uh, you know, generally the people that were getting a barbell in their hand. They never would have had one before. 
I mean, there are, there's plenty of ex-athletes and, and former, you know, high-level athletes that do CrossFit, and it's a way that they can, you know, feel competitive, all that kind of stuff. There's a lot of just, I wouldn't say even average Joes, below-average Joes that go into a CrossFit box, and they just want to they want to feel fit for the first time in their life. And what do they do? They put a barbell in their hand. And, and I think, one, I think it's awesome. I think it's so cool. And, you know, to uh, to their point, you know, it, it, after about a year, you've kind of hit those goals. Right, and that's that's probably true of any, you know, fitness program you go on. I mean, you start if, if you if you stick to it, right? If you stick to it after about three to six months, maybe a year, at a certain point, you've probably, if you're doing it right, you've probably achieved your initial goals of you know, losing body fat, losing weight, getting in general shape, and mm-hmm. then you know, at a certain point, it's like, okay, what am I going to do now? And yeah. I think you've seen a lot of CrossFitters decide, okay. Now that I've achieved those initial goals, I want to do something competitive with this. And mm-hmm. you see a lot of ex-athletes going to CrossFit because it's more in that strength conditioning realm than mm-hmm. other types of, you know, workout regiments. Yep. And a lot of them then go into both powerlifting and weightlifting. And you've seen growth in both of those sports. Yes. Um, one of my ex-bosses, Jim Donasso, has been in weightlifting. And he's actually the one who got me my internship at, at Velocity, my first job. And, you know, he said the meets have grown so much in the last 10 years. It's like powerlifting. You wouldn't believe it. And I think in weightlifting, you could trace the growth almost exclusively to CrossFit. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I think powerlifting, you've got a little other influence of maybe some starting strength, maybe just some general overall acceptance Mm -hmm. of lifting weights being, you know, more socially acceptable, more people using lifting weights as a method to getting in shape. And, and I think, too, you've got – this is a much smaller reason, but, uh, you know, you think about, you know, Elite FDS and Westside. Westside's methods are are used by a significant number of, you know, professional and college, you know, sports teams. Uh, and then you've got, you know, the kind of the rise of Donnie Thompson and all the different stuff he's been kind of putting out there with, you know, body tempering and, and the fat bells and all that. This stuff's all over the place at, at the highest level of sport. You know, I've got a, a guy that, that works for me that used to play for the Bears, and, and we talk about the use of bands and chains and, uh, you know, some of the first uh, XYs they were using, um, you know, for the body tempering were used by the Bears. So he knows what I was like. He didn't know what the lineage of it was. Like, so right. as now they get into their post-playing career, they're, they're staying with it. Yeah, I mean, and you could see the influence, especially, I would note, multiply powerlifting. <laughs> uh, being the innovator, Donnie Thompson has talked about this a couple of times, and mm-hmm. hey, all that innovation of bands, chains, we'll probably have another episode where we can talk about the Franz versus Westside rivalry mm-hmm. of the early 2000s, and gosh, if I would have used a band or a chain or even a board at Franz back when I trained there in the mid-2000s, uh, that would not have gone over well with any Franz. Very well. So I, I think CrossFit has been a big part of it. And my third one um, has been the acceptance, social acceptance of women getting into lifting weights. And I'm not talking about even just powerlifting. I'm just talking women lifting weights mm-hmm. being more socially acceptable. You're going to look like a man. Yeah, I think there was always that um, thought process with females that they they picked up a, a, a barbell. Mm-hmm. They were going to look like a man because the only females in the past that really were seen as weightlifters were female bodybuilders. Yeah. And, or like uh, American Gladiators, the chicks on there. And they were mostly former bodybuilders. More, yeah. And this is no hate on female bodybuilders, but you don't achieve that physique without at least some extra, quote, supplementation. And that's not a hate on their good, their hard work. Mm-hmm. Um, it still takes a lot of hard work to get that size and that little body fat, no doubt. The, the size is one thing. It's 
It's the diet and the low body fat that right. I would never even want to try. But the thought Same. process was, <laughs> well, if I lift weights, I'm going to look like a female bodybuilder. And the, the fact of the matter is, even with androgens, yeah. most females would never achieve that type of size and oh, musculature. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a, That's hard work. It's, it's hard work. It's, it is some, some of the genetic lottery. There's a lot of things that play into right. you know, the physiques that, that used to be seen as, oh, if you're a woman, this is what you're going to be like. And, you know, obviously the rise of, you know, women's sports across the board. Right. Title IX is a big part of this, I think. It's huge. I mean, it's Title IX got more women into sports than anything else. And in my experience training athletes in the years, your females are your best athletes to train. Because oh, 100%. they basically do what they're told in the weight room. And if you, especially if you went to a meet, let's say, you know, when I started in the sport in the early 2000s, and I'll talk about the women in the sport back then, but mm -hmm. you always knew that if you saw a female at a meet in the early 2000s, they were going to have impeccable technique because they were probably the only female in the gym. Mm -hmm. And because the rest are males, usually the female will get a lot of attention. Yep. And females, at least in this arena, um, tend to listen really well and take you know, advice. And I part of that's ego. Yeah. Um, part of that is because usually they're not the quote expert in it. It's somebody else yep. um, that they're listening to. And usually your female lifters at meets were always the most technically sound of any lifter in the meet. Um, because again, they got probably the most coaching of anybody and they listened to it probably better than anybody else. Well, I think, I mean, Lily, my daughter, is a, I think is a good example of that. If you look at her Especially her her squat and her bench, you know, she's got a lot of coaching from a lot of people on that, and you know, she she's got pretty decent form and she's you know she's pretty strong and but you know to your point, incredibly coachable. I'm not saying that because she's my daughter. I mean, it's just that's she is, and that's you know from her gymnastics coach as well. She just she, and and that is almost every woman I see that sticks around in the sport. To your point, it's they they are the best lifters because they. They know they, or they feel, I think, still that they have to prove themselves. So they're going to take all the information they can get, and they're going to le leverage it and, and get better. Yeah, I, and I think after women got introduced to lifting weights, both in sports and I think CrossFit. Uh, my mm -hmm. second point ties right into this one because yep. definitely no other fitness trend put a barbell in more people's hand than CrossFit. What is undoubtedly, I'd say, a thousand percent true. There is definitely nothing else in the history of you know lifting weights that has gotten more women lifting weights than crossfit i i would undoubtedly i would fight anybody on that 100 100 right. and you've seen we've seen women in our meets uh, that are former crossfitters they get introduced to lifting weights from crossfit i've had a number of clients that started with crossfit and they said hey you know i'm not as much on these box jumps or running a mile or doing Gross. kipping pull-ups. No. But I like this weightlifting part. Mm -hmm. um, I like lifting weights, and some of them then offshoot into Olympic weightlifting or, or powerlifting. And, yep. you know, I think you've probably seen more in powerlifting because, the, again, you think about that barrier to entry. The technical skill of the three powerlifts, especially raw, is definitely way lower than mm -hmm. the clean and jerk and snatch in Olympic weightlifting. No, I, I agree, and, and that's so, – so you've got – they, they, they women that are coming in, they listen and, and because they, they see these huge gains so, so quickly that for now, they just don't see a reason to get into the equipped because they're doing so well raw and they're hitting numbers that, I mean, you see the, the, the records on, on, you know, female lifting just continue to, to go up and up and up. And so there, a lot of women aren't seeing the reason necessarily to go after 
uh, records in on the equip side, save for a few. Thinking about Crystal Tate right now, but well, if you go back to when uh, my wife Jackie's first meet was right around, we'll say twenty oh four, I want to say mm-hmm. so two thousand four, probably her first meet. I think in that meet there was only maybe two other women. Laura Phelps, one of them. Um, no pressure. Yeah, and maybe one other female. Mm-hmm. In the average meet we ran, we would probably have less than... If we had 10 females in a meet, that would be a big turnout for females. And now we've had meets where we've had entire days, yeah. or at least entire sessions dedicated to females. Yep. Um, I think I... When I was preparing for this year's summer bash, I was looking at the numbers over the past, you know, kind of since that 2014 when you saw the explosion of lifters. Mm -hmm. And I thought, okay, let me look at the breakdown of the numbers and how I could maybe take what has been a two-day, two-platform meet and transfer it into a three-day, one-platform meet so Mm -hmm. we could run it at 2XL. There was a meet, I think it was around 2016, where we ended up with 60 females. Wow. 60 females in one local meet versus, again, you go back to when Jennifer Gimmel and Jackie Stone and Sydney Toms were the only females in a meet mm-hmm. 10, 10 or so years prior. You know, that was it. It was Jackie Stone. It was Jennifer Gimmel. It was Sydney Toms benching. And it was Shannon Detman. Mm-hmm. And that was, that was basically it. And then um, uh, my partner Howard's assistant, Charlie Long, when I was looking at the results, she lifted in one of those very first Illinois Raw Power Challenges. Uh, 2010. That was about it. That was all you saw back then. And now you see everything from, I mean, 13-year-old girls, you got teenage girls, you've got, you know, masters, you have everything. Lucretia Arna, a local uh, female from South Suburbs who, don't quote me on her age, but she is at least over 70. Mm -hmm. She might be in her upper 70s, if if I'm not mistaken. And comes out and kills it. So those are my three. You know, it's, it's the equipment, how it got so big. It's mm-hmm. CrossFit, and then it's women getting into the sport. That's, to me, why you saw both the rise in raw and, uh, you know, overall the rise in powerlifting in general. Yeah, and, and obviously we're kind of talking about both of these, you know, coinciding, in, and they have, uh, you know, as we we're kind of talking, getting ready for the show, I, I talk about two other things that, you know, play into all this, and that's the, the rise in high school weightlifting programs. Uh, I would say that, you know, you and I are about the same age, you know, a couple of years difference. And, you know, really the weight room was almost exclusively reserved for the football, football. and ba- I was basketball just, teams. I was just about to say that. when I, Even when I was in high school, it yeah. was basically uh, when I was a freshman, sophomore, the weight room was under the stadium and mm-hmm. basically an old garage. And it was basically just football. That yeah. was it. And around my junior year, they built a whole new big weight room, had a PE program for mm-hmm. lifting weights, and introduced all the other athletes. But And that was 1994. I graduated in 2001, so 1997, 98, it yeah. was just football. So it was, it was about, it was 99 when they introduced a weight training program uh, that if you if you were involved in a spring sport, which I was, soccer was in the spring uh, in Iowa, um, you did not have to take that. So I was like, well, there's no need to play or do weightlifting playing soccer. So I'm like, I'm not going to do that. So, and then I got to uh, Mount Mercy where I went to college at, and, you know, we didn't have a football team. So we had this itty-bitty, I mean, probably – twice as big as the room we're in right now that was our weight room and we're in a not very big office no we are not it's not a very large space uh but that, that was the weight room at mount mercy now now they have this massive uh you know sports complex they as they gear more towards uh you know getting a football program but just overall I, I look back and i look at um 
I go back to my high school every now and then when I go back to Iowa and I talk to some of the, the coaches there and yeah, they have year long strength training programs for every something from cross country, which I never would have thought of like, why would you need strength training for cross country? Yes, there is a uh, pullover from that soccer, basketball, everybody's doing it. And so th- there's just, this, it's ingrained in kids uh, much, much earlier than it was for us. Well, and think about it from a timeline. We're talking about probably around the early 2000s mm-hmm. that that strength training started to become a big thing for all high school athletes, not just football players. Right. Now you just add, just like you, you add, you know, five, six, seven, ten years to those people, and now they're adults, and they remember, hey, I kind of liked that lifting weights thing. Mm-hmm. And you know what? There's this new fitness trend called CrossFit that includes lifting weights. Look at that. You've got kind of a perfect storm of athletes learning how to lift weights, getting involved in a fitness trend that involves lifting weights, and then a sport all of a sudden that has opened its doors to people that all you need now to compete is a singlet, and that's it. Yep. Now, to be fair, you could you could have lifted in the quote the old days <laughs> with a singlet, but now it, it, you would get you would kind of get strange looks if you would just lift in a single. Be like, why don't you know? Why don't you get a squat suit? Why, yeah. why don't you get a bench shirt? Here, let me take you. Down. And they, actually, what they would do is they, they would actually give you a squat suit or a bench shirt. Be like, here, put put this on. Yep. No, no, you, you need to wear this. Yeah. No, it's it, exactly. And so that's that, that's kind of the difference now in, in just how quickly people are able to get in and get ingrained. And and then you add on top of all this, the internet. Yeah, I I, I talked about last week that. My introduction to powerlifting was finding it through the internet. Yeah. And that was kind of me like actively, you know, there was no, there was not even a Google back then. Like, just kind of like, what was the search engine? Maybe, oh, oh yeah. it was Yahoo or, uh, no, I know what you're talking about. There's a couple other ones that were, were bigger, but Yahoo was, was kind of the big one I was using. And the technology in the search engines was not as it is now. It's not like you put one letter on there yeah. and it's already predicting what the word is going to be. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very different. But yeah, so you could go and you could look, and you can through social media and through the internet, you can look up powerlifting. I remember when I decided to do my first meet, I looked up powerlifting, and the very first thing I saw was a video about Dan Green, and I was like, "That's that is incredible!" Like I thought this, he kind of is. He was a god among men when it came to strength. I'm like, it's you know, it, it was awesome to watch. But it, but it made this so accessible because he's out in Northern California. Mm-hmm. You know, you look at even 10, 15 years ago, I still would have had to dig for stuff like that. Right, and now you've got YouTube videos, you've got... You've got Instagram, you've got Facebook, you've got... More powerless than you could even want to follow on Instagram and Facebook. Yeah. And blogs. Um, I mean, it was around that same time in 20, the the mid-2000s. Podcast, Podcast, right. (laughs) The mid-2000s, I started my first website, chicagopowerlifting.com, because Mm -hmm. at that time, it was kind of hard to find information. Yeah. And so I made a simple website, which we still have to this day, where you could search meets in Chicago, you can search for gyms. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, those are the main things. But, you know, I was kind of digging and had to go on a message board to find, like, hey, is there any powerlifting in Chicago? Little did I know I was sitting on, you know, a huge plethora of powerlifting gyms and knowledge. Yeah. Yeah. And and one right down the road from my house in Franz Gym. Yeah, no, that's it, and that's again, it it, it it makes such a smaller world, and you have all these things kind of going on. So you've got you know the investment of equipment, and and you know kind of I won't say driving people away from uh, equipment lifting because what I will say is with this advent of raw, and this will be just kind of a looking into next week. At some point, everybody's going to go. I can't keep doing this forever. And, and so there's a reason we started wearing equipment. Exactly. Exactly. That's, that's your preview for next week. And then you've got this rise of CrossFit and, you know, 
what they did, they did a phenomenal job of branding working out. Like you right. had calisthenics, aerobics, like they were doing it, and that's fine. They branded, and that partnership with Reebok, one, it saved Reebok. And it, and because it, it gave them their niche. It did. And, and and Reebok's huge. And now Reebok has their, you know, their partnerships with Les Mills and a couple of other group fitness. That That is, Reebok is group fitness. That is their thing. Right. And people could hate on some of the aspects of CrossFit all day long. And if you wanted to ask me as a strength coach, are there aspects of it I'm not a big fan of? Sure. Mm-hmm. But I'm not on, you know, uh, filling a 60,000, you know, seat stadium and not on, I'm not discounting the WPOB on ESPN3, but I think the CrossFit games are on probably ESPN one or yeah. some other network channel getting, you know, there are, there are more Netflix specials on the CrossFit games than there are on powerlifting. Well, that's for sure <laughs> for now. Yeah. For now. <laughs> and, and then, and then the, the rise of women in, in strength sports is just uh, th- that rising tide is raising all ships. Right. Because in the past it was probably 90, 10, 95, five. Yeah. And uh, we were always open to it. Although there's a guy I follow online recently. He was uh, had left one crew and was starting his own crew. And that was one of his qualifiers, which kind of surprised me. It kind of went back to the old no, school. No females. No females on his crew. Hmm. So, And that's one thing that had always kind of separated our team, I thought, than some crews. And again, now it's, you know, I, I think pretty much everybody would accept a female. But, yeah. I mean, Ernie Franz, he talks about how originally he didn't allow any females. And Maris Sternberg was mm-hmm. the first one to say, hey, you should let me train with you. I, you know, I'm lifting in meets. Yeah. And then he really opened the door. He had his wife train with him for yep. a while. Um, oh, man. Then we got a whole other story about uh, Maris and one of his trainees, Felicia, who uh, got banned from the IPF Worlds and oh, boy. led to a whole lawsuit. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it was something where you were the exception in the rule if you saw a female in a powerlifting meet, and now it's it's probably sixty forty. It's yeah. not it's not half and half yet. Yeah, no, I mean, it could be like in you know you see in college campuses, it's becoming more females going to college than than males. I, I don't yeah. know that you'll see that in powerlifting. I think you'll probably always see at least more. I think it's still something that tends to appeal more to males than females, but you're, you're definitely going to see a rise. Yeah. You're, you're going to see more and more women come in. And, and I, I think honestly, you're going to see more and more young women come in. Here's the interesting thing. Rewind 10 years ago, having something like where, um, you had a crew like Marosher had, where you had a bunch of females that mm-hmm. weren't quote attached. And I don't mean that in any pejorative. Mm-hmm. The first time my wife and I went to a national meet together, I told her, Look around the room of the warm-up area. Every dude that's in his 20s got a hang-off girl. He's got some chick that's dressed scantily clad, mm-hmm. that doesn't lift weights, that just hangs out with him. Yep. You never would have seen what you see now, where if you almost got the hang-off dude at meets, where you've got the female, mm-hmm. who is the only one of the two that power lifts. Oh, she's the alpha. And he doesn't, maybe he like works out, but he definitely doesn't power lift. Mm-hmm. You never would have seen that. I shouldn't say never. It would have been rare to see that 10 or 15 years ago. Yeah. Most of the females in the sport in the 90s and 2000s, it was either they belonged to a gym and a crew or probably 50% of the time they were a boy or a girlfriend or a wife mm-hmm. of a lifter who decided that they wanted to get into it. Yep. And that was very common. Um, now, yeah, you'll see the opposite. You'll see the female mm-hmm. that gets in lifting and the male... I mean, again, maybe he works out, but he didn't power lift. No, he does not. <laughs> <laughs> Trust me, I've seen it. Right. 
I think that probably we're a little over an hour now, Bane. I think that probably seems like a good spot to. Yeah, they're probably to, sick of hearing my voice. So. To, to end cap that on the rise of Raw. Raw, Raw, Raw. I think I've been a little angrier this week than last week. Yeah, I just keep keep getting a little angrier. You oh. know, we we'll, we'll get the strength in here at some point, but the anger we get, we got to get going. Yeah, I, when we start talking about single ply, I, I don't think that'll be next week. Next week, we'll just talk about equipped in general. Yeah, and kind of how we started with equipment and how again. It's always been equipped. It never, it never left. There was, and uh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna check with my my buddy Ricky Del Crane. Um, he, I think he had said there was a year in the early days of powerlifting where they took away knee wraps. Now there was new squat suits. Mm-hmm. I think he said it was around 72, 73, 74. Okay. They experimented with a year of no knee wraps. Everybody hated it. Okay. And so the next year they brought it back. Okay. And so there might have been one year in the past of powerlifting where it was rah rah rah. But for most of the time, there was always knee wraps. And then in the 80s, when they were available, yeah, they had squat suits. Mm-hmm. And then when either, depending on who you ask, Ernie Franz or John Enzer <laughs> created a bench shirt, um, people started wearing those. Well, like I said there's a lot to talk about there because there's, there's, there's a ton to unpack. I, I really think the WPO is going to open people's eyes to, wow, if this sport is truly about just moving the most weight... Is raw the law, or is gear the way to go? I think that's a good place to end. This is Eric Stone signing out. Strength and anger.